There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramesh ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Hello, happy Monday. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Uh, today, England enter the zone of a big meh. Scotland can boogie-woogie after reaching a first major tournament for 23 years, though, which gives us the chance to relive our favourite penalty shootout saves. And on the subject of goalkeepers as well, we'll pay tribute to the Liverpool and Spurs legend Ray Clements to help me chew the fat and go over all of that from the Times. Joining us, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, and as ever, Gregor Robertson. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Not too bad, Hugh. Thank you. How are you? <sighs> Happy as Larry. Couldn't be happier. easy easy we'll come to it in a minute all right sorry sorry sorry. you will have your stay on scotland yeah we've spoken to the scottish football correspondent michael grant from the times as well who shares uh, his views a little bit later on but it was it was fantastic for scotland we will get to that i'm okay um it's it's a it's a weird one isn't it lockdown 2.0 i'm not going to be too london centric because i know parts of the country are into like month four or five of living like this. But it's a, it's a weird one. Like I still have to go into work at TalkSport on the weekend at the moment. And during the week it is very quiet on the tube at the moment. The weekends, however, there is not a massive difference. It has to be said, you know, clearly people are, are, are in bubbles a lot in London and visiting their uh, their their bubbles because, um, yeah, there's a lot of people out and about, shall we say. Yeah, I did, I did a voyage to, to Carlisle actually to for my journeyman call on this weekend and um, it's, it was the same. <laughs> it was the same. There's certainly a lot of people around and, and as you say, in uh, perhaps larger bubbles than we would have expected. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's being called the Aero, the Aero Lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. It was good. quite slow there, sorry. Very good. So you can tell it's Monday, can't you? That took everyone a few seconds to realise what the joke was. Dear me. I'm, not, I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to see how many people listening can get to that eventual point or whether they run off into another room to ask people, what, she, what does she mean in Aero yeah. Lockdown? Anyway. If you haven't worked it out by Thursday, email in and we'll explain it. <laughs> I'm sure people will be messaging us like, what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I haven't seen an Aero for a while on shelves. Are they still being sold? Oh, yes. They're, glu- they're gluten-free, so I eat a lot of them. Oh, I see. Oh, I didn't realise. I'll try one out. I'll try one out. Um, look, 
a lot of things being tried out by Gareth Southgate at the moment. He seems to have settled on a back five. Um, I, I don't know whether that's because of injuries, but it seems like over the last couple of games, that is the way that England want to play. And they have lost their last two competitive matches. Um, look, the game against Belgium, it's weird looking at the media today um, because it looks like we won, frankly speaking. I mean, listening to the radio earlier on, a brilliant performance from England, apparently. Sensational players, the likes of Jack Grealish, all looking ahead to Euros next year. Couldn't be happier. Oh, yeah, we lost 2-0 to Belgium and we're not going through the Nations League. So can anyone explain why it's such a positive headline to take from a defeat? I admire the consistency of those peculiar comments because after England um, defeated Belgium in the most boring game known to the universe of football, most Lingen fans were actually saying, which I never thought I'd hear them say, they were saying, I'd rather, I'd rather lose beautifully than win in such a turgid manner. I want to be inspired by my country. This is awful. I, I want to enjoy watching England. Whereas not so very long ago, I think most England fans would say, we don't care how we win as long as we win, we're desperate to win. So it would be incredibly inconsistent of those people not to enjoy what was a reasonably entertaining performance from England relative to their previous game against Belgium and treat it as a victory because this is what they were yearning for. They were yearning for some degree of expression, which they got. I admit this is all relative, by the way. Um, and I think that's so I think, Hugh, that's why people are treating it like a victory, because it felt more joyful and entertaining than it had been of late. But the big mystery, I think, is why on earth, if you're a manager with access to, to absolute plethora of amazing talent, but a bit on the weak side when it comes to centre-halves. You decide you need three of them every time you line up. Bizarre. You could say the same about the midfield. That's the thing, the biggest takeaway I've had. It's not new. It's, this, this is the same conversation that's been had for a, you know, a good few months now, is that England, you look at England's team and it looks like they're wedging in more average players than they have to, to kind of mask the medio their me mediocrity, if you know what I mean. It's like, as Alison says, they're not blessed with central defenders, so let's play a third one. And they're not really blessed with central midfielders. So you're playing, you know, I, I just think Hender Henderson and Rice together is so uh, uninspiring. And when the penalty for doing so is playing less of your, your best players, your most attacking players, then it seems foolish for me. And I read, you know, I've been reading some stuff this weekend about how, you know, international football or football is largely kind of conservative and the, the, the successful teams are the ones who kind of, you know, they can defend the best and they and and you know maybe win on the break or you know, go back to France winning uh, winning last World Cup. You know, they weren't an exciting team to watch, but they they were solid and kind of resolute and they had talent on the break. England just don't look like they're finding that formula at all, no matter what they try to do. And uh, as I say, I just feel like it's a waste. I think I a should say that they, they, they did have a win against the Republic of Ireland in a friendly since the last time we spoke as well before the defeat against Belgium. Um, when you said Henderson and Rice, I, I, I'm not a very imaginative person, but suddenly a bowl of rice pudding was in my head. I mean, that is the sort of image. Stodge. That they, that, yeah, stodge <laughs> that they conjure. You know, there is no sort of 
dream state coming out of that central midfield area. Um, and I, I do feel like it's a little bit difficult for Gareth Southgate at the moment. Like he's almost stuck between a rock and a hard place in that if he relies on some of the, the better talents going forward, he won't get any results whatsoever. It almost feels like he's so scared to play four at the back, any of the four defenders that he's got and give more license to the players going forward. But I almost feel like there's a bit of misfortune at the moment for him as well because players missing, you know, Sterling was injured this time around. Joe Gomez has got a big injury, as we know. And maybe things would be a little bit different if Sterling and Rashford were playing last night and whether they can team up with, with Kane in a different way. It just seems like with the players he's had at his disposal over the last couple of windows, um, last couple of international breaks, he's almost been stuck to this this sort of formation. Tom? Anyone who's listened to this podcast podcast long enough will know that I'm a very stubborn man. And so I'm obviously going to stick behind Gareth Southgate and the idea of this back three. But I, I've been trying to reflect on it more in a broader sense and think about international football. And I think we view international football because of our focus, nonstop focus on the club game. We look at it in a similar manner, whereas international football, is it not all about those tournaments? And so if you think about, say, the Olympics... There's been, there's been lots of excellent pieces around recent Olympics and British success and about how in the build-up to Olympics, cycling, rowing, other sports are often quite crap in the build-up to an Olympics because what they're doing is trying to peak at the time of the Olympics. Now, I'm not making a direct comparison with Gareth Southgate's England, but if your time before the tournament is working out what players are going to play, who's your starting team, you know, before the last World Cup, he suddenly sprung this back three with Kyle Walker and everyone was going, what the hell is going on here? This is this is a nightmare. I think it was against Holland. I remember all my mates texting me going, what the hell's going on here? And then we got to the tournament and it worked. Like there, that, that I think there's a reason for this, some positivity around it because we'll go into that next tournament now and Jack Grealish almost certainly will be a starter because we've had these games where some things have gone wrong, but we've worked out that Jack Grealish has to be in the team. And the re- the reason for that desire to peak at those tournaments and work it out is that you have to look at their group, Croatia, Czech Republic, and now the mighty Scotland. If you look at the games where England have played a back four, I think those teams are primed to just be a two-one with a back four. They'll create chances. Kosovo scored three goals against England with a back four. That's surely what Southgate's looking at and thinking about it. And so maybe we have to put up with a defeat to Belgium and a crap performance here. But is anyone really going to care if we get through that group and then are in the knockout stages? Surely, like Alison saying, you know, part jokingly about lovely performances in defeat against Belgium, but that that will get crucified, won't he, when it comes to a tournament? Surely, Tom, you're talking as if I mean, you're you are talking as if we know where we're going with England and we know what team and style he will play at the delayed Euros, whereas. I look at Southgate and the selection and the, the system and I think, oh my goodness, he can't make up his mind. And all he, all he seems happy to do is keep calling up people who are younger and younger and younger and more experienced because that creates a nice sort of vibe around the camp and it gets a lot of positive reporting about it. Oh, his faith in youth and building for the future and age is no limit. Whereas I think by now... He's only got four more games before the serious stuff starts. Surely, I don't care. I don't care about Jude Bellingham or anyone who's under 18 anymore. I want to know 
that he knows where he's going, what he's doing, and if what he's doing is got an absolute plan. You seem very confident that there seems to be a plan, other than he seems to be sticking to three at the back, which I I wouldn't do. Uh, it, it in and around that, I can't see I can't see the I can't see the character or the style of the team. And you say. Oh, now we know we've got Grealish. You're just talking about one good performance on his first competitive start for the country. I mean, really? Do you think? I mean, is that is that is that what you call proper planning in the run up to a to a game with four games left? Well, I think run he would then. Grealish is surely then in the running for the, to play those four games. I, I'm talking more about the system, and you're saying there's no plan. I'm saying the plan clearly is to play three at the back. And then the four across the yeah, midfield. You, that, 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 what, and hang who, what players you have available to play that system. No, That's I the agree. The, I they agree. The players he's aren't. Not, the, the he's selection not utilizing policy isn't ideal. Squad they have to the best. But I agree. The selection policy isn't ideal. But as Hugh already alighted on, they've, he's had problems with injuries and with players missing here and there. And I think playing that system with everyone fit, with the likes of Raheem Sterling playing around Harry Kane. I mean, that's another thing that again I reflected on yesterday. Harry Kane was fantastic in that role dropping off and if he had players like Raheem Sterling and Grealish you know playing alongside him or Rashford it'd be far more you know threatening as Jamie Carragher said consistently on the commentary yesterday the lack of pace to run in behind Belgium and also to create pockets of space was was fairly startling so I think I agree the selection policy in terms of players in positions isn't ideal but I don't necessarily think that's all Southgate not knowing I think it's not necessarily him having a full squad to choose from. I think that system with our best players available is the best option for getting out of the group, which is ultimately surely has to be the only aim. But it would mean leaving two of three players, Rashford, Sterling and Sancho, out of the team, probably. If you, want, right, right. if you want okay. Grealish to play, fine. because he's now the talisman, you've got to fine. leave out Rashford, Sterling, right. Sancho, two of them. So and where are you three play, best players? Where are you going to play those three if you play four three three? You're going to play Sancho at right back. Where are you going to no. play those three? I'd play two of them, though. Yeah, well, you're going to play two. That's what I'm saying. I can get I can get two of them in my system as well. You can with Grealish. That's fine, but I, to be honest, I don't think Sancho necessarily. You know, I'm agreeing. I take Alison's point that. Grealish has only played a limited number of games, but at the minute, in terms of form and what he's shown in recent games, he is ahead of Jadon Sancho. So you and you know Marcus Rashford is an excellent player, but is inconsistent. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have any problem with playing going now Sterling and Grealish with Kane. And I'm like I'm saying, I know you can only maybe get one of them in, but even if you play four three three, you then have to play Jack Grealish in a more central role. And where's he been playing brilliantly for Aston Villa? Wide left. No, I don't think it matters where Jack Grealish, it's almost irrelevant where you field him on the pitch. He will roam around and look for the ball. So you first of all, you need to decide upon whether you're willing to have a player like that in your team. And, you know, on last night's evidence, you would say it's probably worth it because he picks the ball up and he drives at players in a way that really no one else does. Maybe Sterling at his best. But I think... The fact that England are now contemplating not playing with some of the most lethal kind of wingers that are in the world at the moment, and they're contemplating not playing them, is mind blowing to me. So uh, you know, if, if if Scotland play England at Wembley, and you've got two of those three players on the bench, um, I'll be delighted. But Scotland will be delighted if they line up against Harry Maguire and Tyrone Mings as a back two, because that gives you so so much more chance. 
And I, like, I, I just, I just increasingly think that because we are so focused, you know, football and club football is a constant source of debate. I do think, you know, we're slightly talking about it in the same way that we talk about, you know, a club manager who's struggling and he's got more games coming up and you've got to change it and the rhythms and the, you know, it constantly changes. Gareth Southgate's job is to get England into the knockout stages of the Euros. What is it? It then? isn't. What is because it? Because I'm not being funny. Playing 4 3 3, England get out of their group. What? Like Croatia, Czech Republic, and Scotland. If England gets played 4 3 3, and Croatia they can't get are out a of very, group, very good team. Scotland, yeah, Scotland, Scotland playing their second there's team. There's a chance three Slovakia teams will get out of the group, Tom. Scotland, Tom, it's a new format. There's a chance three teams get out of the group. The best third place team will get out of the group. I mean, there is okay, a good fine. chance. Well, let's, go, let's go into it then with a Kevin Keegan style. I oh, will just score more than you. Finish third and then we'll get smashed in the it next It doesn't round. have to be that either. All you, I mean, really, I think all people are asking for is a, to remove one centre-half and put the put a better player up top. You've still got two centre-halves and two very sort of solid, defensive-minded midfielders in front of them. That's a block four that's tough to get through. And the rest of your players like going forward and attacking and expressing themselves. At the moment, you've got five players who are absolutely kind of hamstrung by the system and you've got three players up front who are not getting fed the ball enough so there's no link between the two either but Belgium played that system and that system can work and I'm not Belgium I'm, have Tielemans who can play forward passes and Witzel who's athletic You've, he's not got Declan Rice and Jordan Henderson and De Bruyne you know he can. he's like Grealish he can roam anywhere and, and link the play so they, they, England don't have the players to play that system. They don't have the midfielders unless you're going to play Mason Mount holding in the midfield. We're getting bogged down in this now. I just think that the fact is you've most people, I think, want to take one of the defenders off the pitch because they're not very good either. They're not very good defenders. Take one of them out and play one of your attackers. I got slaughtered last night for saying Belgium is showing England how to play this formation because they both basically lined up in the same way. But the timing of the runs of the fullbacks is everything. And... Belgium's were just better. They just understood the system a little bit better than ours. And even though we created all the chances, well, I say the chances, no real great clear-cut chances apart from Grealish's, um, Belgium looked comfortable as soon as they scored their, their two goals. They so, weren't particularly impressive either, though. Let's Belgium. be honest about it. They weren't exciting to watch. No, they, no, they weren't. No, they weren't. But I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the greatest formation in football history. Uh, the, the reason you play five plays at the back is because you probably haven't got a great side. So neither of them was going to play brilliantly or exciting football, but it was just the relationship between Lukaku, Mertens, uh, De Bruyne that was different to our relationship with our front three. And that's fair enough. They've played together probably since they were 10 or 11 years old, those front three, you know, for a long, long time compared to our players who are just getting into the system firstly and just getting used to playing together. But like I say, I just feel like it's slightly unfair on, on Southgate, who doesn't really have the personnel to do anything else at the moment. I, if we go to the tournament, for me, one of the things that annoys me most about this is that he, he perseveres with three as like a front three, as if it was a 4-3-3, three, three, when given that you've played five at the back, you've given no space to your wing backs. By doing that, I mean, Jaden Sancho is only going to pick up a wide position because that's what he's used to doing. We often play this formation with Rashford out on the left. I mean, what, what he, he's not going to give Ben Chilwell or Saka, whoever it might be, any space to get round him. So I, I just think he needs to be sensible about it and play two at the top if he wants to desperately play five at the back, which he seems to want to. Alison, please interject some sort of friendly nature to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, well, I think the, the, 
the most important thing you just said in what sounded a little bit like a rant, Hugh, was um, <laughs> that, Belgium, that Belgium have played together for a long time and they know where they're supposed to be and they understand the system. Uh, that is the role, isn't it? That the role of the international manager to cr- somehow create a sense of family and identity and knowing what you're about. And I don't, I just think Southgate's been there long enough now to be able to have tried to aim towards that. And in some bizarre way, I think he almost um, achieves the opposite with his relentless new caps. And, uh, and he has fiddled with the system through his tenure as well. It's not as if, it's not as if this is part of England heritage to play five at the back or three at the back, however you want to describe it. And the fact that um, if you look at how the, de- the uh, formation is described in various uh, platforms, they all get, they all have a different one. It's not like it's this is this has got a strong identity. Even I mean, I'd go with Tom's point if I felt it was very clear what the system was. But you've got some people calling it three at the back, some people calling it uh, three four three. I mean, uh, five at the back. I mean, people people aren't entirely sure. As you were alluding to, Hugh, you know where 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 the wing backs fit in. Are, are we talking defensively? Are we talking rip roaring wingers? What are we talking about? It's it's it just feels piecemeal. And I, I my big worry is that this, this is all this is all started too late in the day. This should have been what we were talking about eight, 18 months ago, two years ago. It there's too much there's too much building for the future. Not enough. But yes, I agree. Belgium weren't stunning and they weren't overly exciting but I did like the fact they looked like a blooming family and there was a lot hugging going on on the touchline they have that going for them and uh, well I hate to disagree with Tom again but the the idea of you know, I'm getting pelters today no but I mean the Olympic analogy doesn't really work because as you said Yes, it's about peaking at the tournament, but it's where that peak is. You know, we should be growing very much. We've all seen curves this year up and up and up and up and up to that that high point. And actually, it's a very it's very low gradient at this point in time if England are improving. That's fine. but I, And I take Alison's point that ideally you leave a tournament and then you start planning for the next one. And that happened because he did go 4-3-3. And then he started conceding loads of goals and loads of chances. And that's why he's gone back to it. So I, I'm, I'm just defending the logic of the progression of that thinking. So ideally, yeah, that, yeah. Peak, that peak would have gone. And maybe if we'd had suddenly found a central defender from the championship who'd been signed to the Premier League and solved everyone's problems, we'd be peaking with a 4-3-3 that created 15 chances every game and looked pretty solid and were beating Belgium 3-1. Yeah, that'd be ideal. But we got halfway through that pit that four-year period two-year period sorry and he was like oh god we're nearly conceding six against Kosovo and loads of other chances against other teams I'm going to have to go back and start again and we're in the middle of that now and I think that smaller trajectory will peak with a brilliant cohesive successful (laughs) back three system all hail Sir Gareth Southgate for getting, <laughs> for getting England to the finals of the Euros and valiant, mute, <laughs> valiant defeat. Well, listen, it's jobs to get out of the group, so I'm sure we'll get a contract extension after finishing third and, and taking us into a second round match against God knows who. Um, I did want to talk about Jack Grealish just very briefly because he's getting all the plaudits today. He was very impressive in what I would describe as a number 10 role, not the thing that a lot of managers like to do at the moment, give a player that sort of free role. But as Gregor already described, he's fantastic at picking it up where he wants it, driving at players, a couple of fantastic touches as well. But I cannot stand, and I keep hearing it, 
and I hate to moan once again, comparisons with Paul Gascoigne. Please, can we stop this now? I mean, firstly, I, I just think this is some sort of, and I hate, I, I really hate to mention this, but Wayne Rooney got the set. Like any working class player with any level of off-field discretions who is a little bit mercurial and has a bit of talent is described as the new Paul Gascoigne. And I really feel like these are always more comparisons to do with what they've done off the field than on it. And, I, and that's one thing that I just can't stand. Like he's the, he's been in football a long time. He's not the new Gaza. I think we know that already. Paul Gascoigne scaled absolutely fantastic heights in football. But equally, does England need a new Gaza? You know, I don't, I don't really think they do. They didn't, they didn't win anything when Paul Gascoigne was there, certainly. So why do we need a new Paul Gascoigne? It's like a desperate attempt because we haven't seen a very creative side to say we need a creative spark. And we've always wanted a new Gascoigne because he captivated the public's imagination. And maybe they, maybe we want a player that does that. But on the field of play, just let Jack Grealish be Jack Grealish. Or am I wrong? I really, really obviously desperate to see Jack Grealish, um, I don't know, booked in the semi-final of the Euros and burst into tears <laughs> while some, some sort of opera plays in the background. I think that would be amazing for England. I just, I, I mean, I just think this is to really, calling him the next Gaza is to wind up, um, is to wind up Southgate actually, because that is exactly the sort of maverick, mercurial character that does not fit his ethos, if you like. He wants, he wants very sort of family friendly, open, smiley group of guys um, who are who are comfortable with the media and don't do too much off the pitch but because I think most of them are now doing things off the pitch he's probably thinking oh I may as well have Jack Grealish in there as well doesn't matter anymore um <laughs> yeah I, but I agree with you Hugh it's not it's not exactly helpful to uh to it's not helpful to compare any player with anyone else and when I watch Jack Grealish I do not think of Paul Gascoigne actually I think they play differently I mean that that lovely um over the head flick he did um against Belgium I mean, reminded me of, of Gaza against Scotland could it have been could it have been Gregor maybe that little flick Gaza did but um, um, over Colin Hendry was it I think it might have been but I mean you know more than one player in the universe can can, can flick the ball over their shoulder and uh, or treat the ball like it's a juggling trick but he, otherwise no he doesn't remind me of Paul Gascoigne and I would just one last thing on Grealish uh, if we're going to play him uh, we need to sort out our set pieces because he's going to win an awful lot of free kicks and I didn't see England uh, profit from them at all against Belgium. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Gaza thing, all it, is, all it is is he does something different. He's a different player to anyone else on the pitch. And as I agree with your point too that he almost, he's taken the creative burden now because there seems to be a lack of creativity in this current England team despite all the talented players you have. So, you know, they're that's the only comparison. I don't think they're compar comparing them as a player necessarily. It's just that there, there are echoes of a player who does something very different to anyone else on the pitch. And it seems to be, even though it was his first competitive <laughs> game, taking the entire creative burden on, on upon his shoulders and relishing it as well. He was, he was brilliant. It's just how you're going to fit him into the team. Tom, no opinion on this. Well, wow, okay, all right. Well, for, the, for the sake of harmony, I'll say I agree with all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Every uh, single uh, thing you said was correct. 
Thank you. Thank you. Listen, yes. I'm sure it's something that we yes. will pick it's up a- again uh, <laughs> over the next uh, few weeks and 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 coming months as well. Uh, England host Iceland in their next game as well. So on Thursday morning, I'm sure we'll have another performance to uh, either shred apart or praise Jack Grealish for. Um, but before that game, tributes will be paid to an England legend, their former goalkeeper, Ray Clements, who has passed away at the age of 72. He was diagnosed 15 years ago with advanced a prostate cancer. He pretty much won everything there was to win, including five league titles, three European Cups, a Super Cup, the FA Cup twice. He won the League Cup. He won three UEFA Cups, six charity shields as well during his uh, massive playing career at Scunthorpe United before going to Liverpool and Spurs as well, where he was a, a legend at both clubs. Uh, longtime England rival Peter Shilton said he was absolutely devastated. Liverpool great Sir Kenny Dalgleish called him a true legend. There was a big outpouring of emotion uh, from those who played with him. And that was incredible to see over the past uh, day or so. He was a fantastic player, fantastic person as well. Uh, Alison, I'll start with you. Did you did you have memories of Ray Clements at all? Did you meet him at any point? No, sadly, I never met him once, which is, feels kind of weird. But no, I didn't. But I, as weird, really, even more weirdly, I I took him completely for granted. He was he was there when I still fell in love with Liverpool, and so. Um, I mean, you know, when you when you're a kid, I mean, I, I just didn't. Goalkeepers weren't like things I focused on particularly. He he was sort of doing his job and doing it incredibly well, and I I will admit I took that I took that completely for granted, and um, because I never saw him make many mistakes, it was just like that's what that's, that's what a good goalkeeper does. He's just incredibly consistent, and um, I read Graham Souness's. Um, tribute to him in the Times this morning. This is Monday morning, and um, I, I, I found it really emotional. I think it's one of the best things Graham Souness has ever written because he was really forceful about uh, how, how, in terms of comparing him to modern keepers, he would hold his own because he was the greatest. He could play from the back. He commanded his area in training. He would didn't want to play in goal. He liked to be outfield elbowing them all and showing them, <laughs> showing them who was boss. And my other strong memory of Clements was um, a sort of a degree of shock. Why, why on earth would anybody want to leave Liverpool? I couldn't understand it. And Graham Souness explains that um, uh, he, he asked um, Clements that question. And he said after the European Cup final in Paris in 1981. Um, everyone was celebrating Liverpool's win, and he was—he felt really low, and he realised if he couldn't celebrate because this was his third European Cup, it, if it wasn't hitting the spot anymore, which is how Souness put it, then he, he had to have a change. He needed a change for him, to, a, a new challenge. And put like that, I think that was a really brave thing to do—to leave a team when you're integral to its success but you know you're not getting anything out of it anymore. So he went for a new challenge and he went to Spurs, which horrified me at the time. But put in that context, I can see it as a very mature thing to do. And that famous reception we've seen on social media repeated over and over again of when he came back and the cop serenaded him um, is one of the beautiful moments in football, I think. 
I think it's interesting hearing Alison talk about that move to Tottenham because also in the time today, we've got Graham Roberts, who's um, a former Tottenham defender, talking about when Clemens joined. Uh, and he says, when Clem joined from Liverpool in 81, the first thing we asked him was, how did that happen at Liverpool? He replied, basically, you don't drink enough. What he meant was that we didn't go out enough together. We started to socialise more. Our families mingled in the players' lounge after matches and we developed a fantastic team spirit. Clem brought the additional winning mentality from Anfield. And he goes on to say that you know, Clemens was constantly berating uh, Roberts and his fellow defenders and it, it put in the context of what Sunes revealed about a desire for a new challenge. I think that says an awful lot about his character, doesn't it? That he was in this great team and he decided, no, I'm going to go and take on a new challenge now. And clearly, judging by Robert's words, that he really set out to do just that. And that's why he then becomes a legend at two clubs, which doesn't often happen uh, in football, does it, at the top level? Not often at all. And and that special moment that Alison described when he jogs down for the second half after Glenn Hoddle's fantastic uh, opener for Spurs, put them ahead at half time. Um, one of the special things about those images for me is that it's the way that he punches the air as if he still plays for Liverpool and they've just won a match or they've just won a trophy or they've just scored. And it's okay because it's Ray Clements and it's Liverpool. You know, there is no sort of wise, you know, if it was now, it'd be like, hold on a minute, you play for us. How dare you celebrate with the fans of the other, you know, it was very much a passionate moment of remembering that we were great together. We won things together. We were at the top together. And it wasn't just like a, hi, nice to see you again. Thank you for this round of applause. It was like, yes, we did that. And it's a special, I mean, as Alison says, it's a special, special moment. I'm a Manchester United fan and I think it's a special moment. So for the Liverpool fans, I'm sure it means a lot more. And Ray Clements meant a lot more to them as well. Um, you can read, um, as we've referred to, Graeme Souness's memories in the Times right now. You can also hear a stirring tribute written by our chief football writer, Henry Winter, to the great Ray Clements, who has passed away at the age of 72. And you can also enjoy um, great journalism in the Times and Sunday Times today by getting yourself one month free. Go online at searchthetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. So last time we met, we were looking forward, weren't we, with hope and trepidation to Scotland's playoff for a place at Euro 2020. It was nail-biting, to say the least. It was a nerve shredder, to be frank. Uh, one all in normal time, stayed the same in extra time, 5-4 on penalties. David Marshall 
with the decisive save and it sent Scotland into raptures. Uh, let's have an atta with the time. Scottish football correspondent, then Michael Grant. Hi, Michael. Hi, Hugh. How are you? Are you still celebrating? <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably I'm on a bit of a high still, to be honest with you. I mean, that was... Uh, 22 years in the waiting in uh, on Thursday night in Belgrade and I do feel like I've served those 22 years. I was covering the last game that Scotland played at a World Cup in France 98 and have covered all the 10 failed qualification campaigns since then. So yeah, I must admit, I kind of felt I earned it. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, they owed you one. <laughs> they owed me one and listen, it was, uh, it was a privilege to be there. We're very lucky, obviously, no supporters are allowed into games and very, very few journalists travelled to Belgrade with Scotland. There was only three from the written press and I was lucky enough to be one of them. So yeah, it was a special night. I mean, it's easy to be cynical, but yeah, it, it, it was uh, pretty emotional to be honest. And you can say I was there, one of the few as well. So a special slice um, for a Scotland fan, any Scotland fan, but for you in particular. So congratulations for that. How, how big do you think this is? Um, in Scottish football. You said yourself it was emotional. We saw pictures of fans, you know, celebrating all over the country as well. It felt like a huge moment for the squad, for Steve Clark, but, but for Scottish football as a whole as well. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, something that's been said about Scottish football over the last few years is that there's a kind of apathy has set in towards the national team. And I, I, I must admit, I never bought that. And I and I, I wrote kind of criticising or arguing, disputing that point, because I, I think it was just pessimism and negativity and people got fed up with being constantly let down by the national team. Um, there were some really stinking results over those years and people just got sickened and people got scunnered and fed up. Um, but I never really mistook that for, arrogant, for uh, apathy. Because I thought, you know, you could, I mean, this is a kind of strange way of putting it, but there was so much scorn towards the Scottish team on, on social media when they, when they had these bad results. And you think, well, if there was real apathy, you wouldn't even get this. People just wouldn't care. But, um, but that was there. And I think it really needed the, just the, the kind of catalyst of, of, of qualifying for something again. Um, and I mean, you know, old enough to remember when we made it to five World Cups in a row, a couple of European Championships, it was it was a kind of natural punctuation mark in your life, a kind of rhythm of your, of growing up that Scotland were at World Cups. So an entire generation of, of uh, supporters and just the general public have have missed that and you know Scotland has really suffered from it their football has really suffered from being marginalized not least in a financial sense because there's big money coming into the SFA now Rel relatively speaking there's big money coming into the SFA now as a result of the the the, the bare fact of qualifying it was a, a disciplined performance on the evening Scotland showed guts in particular I thought um is, is Steve Clark a Scotland legend now what do you make of his his management and certainly the tactical setup that has brought Scotland such success of late yeah I mean he um he has made Scotland into Kilmarnock now you know to to <laughs> to maybe maybe many listeners might wonder what what the hell that means but um Steve Clark had a had a, a reasonable, unspectacular managerial career in England at West Brom and at Reading. He really probably scaled greater heights as a coach. You know, he served, obviously, Jose Mourinho, um, Kenny Dalgleish. Um, he was at Ruud, under Ruud Hullett at Newcastle. Um, and, you know, he that, that was his... Um, 
but that was where he came to prominence in a coaching in coaching sense. He waited a long time to become a manager in his own right. He wanted his. He, he, I, we did an interview with him for the Times last week, and he and he spoke about he wanted everything in his life to be right before he got into management. He wanted his finances to be right. He wanted to have achieved what he could as a as a backroom coach. He wanted his you know his his, his family and his wife to be ready for him to go into management. So you know he did that, and you know, you know probably didn't feel that he really um, achieved everything that he would want to in England. He came back to Kilmarnock, and it was just the right fit for him. He won the Scottish Manager of the Year twice. He took them from the bottom of the league to third. They were giving Rangers and Celtic a bloody nose. The crowds went uh, went up, you know, four or five fold. It, it was a spectacular success, really. Um, they weren't pretty to watch, but they were well organised. They worked hard. They knew their roles. They were uh, a hard team to score and to um, hard team to beat. And it's taken a little bit of time. We took some spankings at the beginning of Clark's reign with Scotland, but that's what he's turned Scotland into: um, a, a team that's hard to beat, a team that can go to Belgrade and see out a game like that. It, it, you know that that takes a bit of nerve, and it also takes organisation. But they also played well on the night. Very well on the night, yeah. And I already think now, and I think England fans are, are maybe a little bit scared about the prospect of meeting them at Euro 2020, having watched that game as well. Um, because I think they showed all of the spirit and desire that sometimes is lacking from an England side. Um, and certainly we don't see that level of togetherness either. Are people in Scotland looking ahead um, to a game against England and, and almost rubbing their hands together? Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, I'll be honest, I think the kind of initial feeling was really that the England game was a bonus. I mean, you know, just the the sheer excitement and relief and release of getting back to a tournament was was the be-all and end-all. Um, I mean, it's a bit ironic, I guess, that Scotland's going to be hosting <laughs> hosting the games, you know. I mean, they would have liked the the fun and the excitement of, of you know, descending on somewhere on mass, you know, um, and instead it'll be at Hamden. But I suppose the counter way of looking at it is that more Scotland fans will, will hopefully get a chance to get tickets for the games. They play the Czech Republic first, they play the Croatia second, it's, it's third, sorry, both at Hamden, and in between is the game at, at Wembley. And who, who knows, but I mean, certainly your, your point, Hugh, about the the spirit and the camaraderie amongst the team is, is absolutely there for all to see. I mean, you could, you could see the way they reacted on on uh, on the pitch in Belgrade on Thursday night. That's to be expected, but it was great because collectively those players and you know the those that went before for for the last twenty years have have never had that. There's been nothing really for them to buy into. Occasional one-off fine results, a couple of ones against France, especially, but nothing tangible to show for it at the end of the night until Thursday night. So yeah, I mean we're looking at this team. It's a bit of a kind of thrown together team I mean there's not you know th th obviously there's some stars in it you've got Andy Robertson you've got Kieran Tierney um, Scott McTominay uh, from United but there's also you know a sprinkling of guys who have moved around in the Scottish League for free transfers you know um, so great great credit to Clark for for uh, putting this kind of disparate group together and, and, and getting a tune out of them a 1-0 defeat to Slovakia, though, um, to follow that match-up. It was just sore heads. Eight changes made, I think, uh, as well. Does that bring the mood down a little bit or don't really care? 
Um, it, I suppose it brings the mood down a little bit, but um, it, it is important. I mean, we're not getting carried away about how great Scotland are, you know, and can't put a foot wrong sort of thing, but they did play well. Um, they created a, a, a handful of chances. I mean, half a dozen really solid chances. It was pretty hard on them to uh, lose. And, I mean, Slovakia rated higher than them in the ratings. Slovakia took care of the Republic and Northern Ireland in the in the playoffs themselves to qualify too. So, you know, certainly no disgrace for Scotland to lose there. But, you know, it, 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 was, an, it was still an encouraging and a positive performance. Um, we can't completely dismiss it because Scotland really want to win their Nations League group. It, it, has, um, it has solid consequences for them if they do. They go up into Group A for the next time. There's a real likelihood that they'll get a, a World Cup playoff place out of it as well. Um, so it's, it's just a case of kind of keeping momentum going. Scotland play Israel away on Wednesday night. And if they win that, they've won the group. If the Czechs fail to win their game, Scotland win the group. So they're still in a pretty handsome position. But, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> your point about being a bit weary and a bit um, hungover probably carries a little bit of uh, truth in it. They, they, did make eight, they did make eight changes, but the, the, the mood is still pretty buoyant around the place and, and it will be for some time yet. Our thanks to the Times Scottish football correspondent Michael Grant there for, sh for sharing his views on how uh, Scotland are feeling at the moment. And um, how are you feeling, Gregor? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <magnificent>. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd see you dance around your living room. Shocking. <laughs> oh, magnificent. We know how to celebrate, don't we? <laughs> How are you feeling? I honestly don't think I can't remember being happier after watching a football game. Aww. I really cannot in my lifetime. I'm, I'm being <laughs> serious because there's something. Twenty-two years, guys. I mean, like you know, we're talking about the tactical, in, in, you know, intricacies of English systems and all that kind of stuff. Twenty-two years. Like I was fourteen when we were last in a major tournament. Um, fourteen, still at school, and. <laughs> it's just hard to explain how over the years you know you kind of you don't expect Scotland to to get through but you really have so much hope to and it's such you know football football is a huge thing for for Scotland a huge thing it's it's the national sport even though we've faded into faded from kind of significance and prominence and it's been really tough watching from the outside looking in at every major tournament you don't really have any skin in the game um you see all the kind of sounds and colors of it all and just wish you were there and so it's an enormous thing and even as you know everyone has been said about how this has been a difficult year and stuff and even though you're watching the game on your own in your house you know it's still kind of a joyous kind of communal moment I, my phone lit up i spoke to friends for hours that night and um just an amazing, amazing uh, night for Scotland. Yeah, brilliant. We were talking earlier about England identity and the shape and personnel and what we expect from England as um, and whether that it was kind of weird that people were enjoying enjoying an England defeat because they played relatively well and there were signs of optimism. Does it matter to you, Gregor, what identity Scotland have on the pitch? Because all I've read about and heard about from people who are Scottish, is we won. Doesn't matter how. Doesn't doesn't it really doesn't matter. It's about it's about the guts and the guts and then the ensuing glory. It's not about how you got there. 
Well, the first answer to that is no. I mean, when it's been 22 years, who gives a damn? But the truth is, we played brilliantly. I, again, I can't remember the last time Scotland played as well. We kind of... We, we, we dominated. I think it would have been a travesty. We, you know, it was a tra- he, he thought Scotland had outdone themselves when we conceded that goal. And you think, you know, we've taken off our three best players. We're in trouble here. And we we hung on. And, you know, going through penalties was, was, was a magnificent moment. But throughout the 90 minutes, I think we deserved to. We were the better team. And we're playing against a team with players for play for Real Madrid and Lazio and playing the Premier League and whatnot. So, you know, they weren't, they weren't a team full of mugs. And the thing that Steve Clark seems to have done is, I think he has given us an identity. It's taken time. He had a really tough start. But, you know, we were nine games unbeaten there. And a lot of that was built on, obviously, we had four clean sheets in a row, I think, until the Slovakia game. A lot of that was built on being, having a solid defence. But he's looked at, he's looked around and he's, he's given a chance to players who no one else would have. Two of the back five were two Motherwell players, Declan Gallagher and Stephen O'Donnell, playing playing alongside a Man United player, a Liverpool player and an Arsenal player. I don't think other managers would have given them the opportunity and the trust. Because as you know, as Michael was saying, what he did at Kilmarnock was nothing short of miraculous. He, he had them kind of almost looking like they were going to break the, the old firms. So he, he he's having worked in that division... And seen, you know, he's spoken up the SPL where everyone else talks it down. And he, his time there, I think he's realised that there are good players in that league. Players who are as good as some of the players in the Championship, say, who are playing for Scotland. Or even some players who are playing in the Premier League. He's saying, you know, everyone who plays in the Premier League is, is a top, top player. So he has given us that identity. But also, the, the other thing that was a masterstroke is Lyndon Dykes. I mean, a £2 million sign-in for QPR from, from Livingston in the summer. You know, he's, he was, he's got Scottish ancestry, but he's a big Aussie, really. Um, <laughs> and what he has done is nothing short of miraculous because you hoist the ball up within 15 yards of him and he will hold it up, he will win the header, or at the very, very least, he will make life very hard for the defender who's going to win it. And what he does is he gives... Players like McGinn, Christie, Ryan Fraser when they're fit, Callum McGregor, he gives them time to get up and support. So no, we've we've been solved in the past defensively, and you play the ball forward, and we don't have anyone getting up there quick enough. Lyndon Dykes has changed all of that because it's kind of work rate and his and his effort and the way he holds the ball up. So you know, there's been some t- McTominay in a back three. People look to that first and like, oh, this, what are you thinking here? The fact he was playing a back three, you know, we can have these debates as well about systems <laughs> and there was a big debate about that you think you know I think this experiment uh, should probably die now Steve uh, but he stuck with it and he, you know he's tried McTominay McTominay had a tough time as well but he's really grown into it and he's got some he's decent on the ball so absolutely we have an identity it's not just about the fact we went through we have an identity now and as I, you know, I wrote a piece at the, at the weekend I can't remember a time where they looked like they wanted to be there more the players. They really look like they're together and they want to be there. And that, in international football, is half the battle because getting players to turn up, getting players, you know, they're fighting against clubs who are trying to pull them out with injuries and things like that. Getting the players to want to be there um, is half the battle. And Steve Clark somehow has done that. To that point, I was speaking to Tony Cascarino yesterday and in his column 
in the Times today, he played with Steve Clark at Chelsea and he was talking about how he was in the dressing room and he was, Clark was obviously a big figure um, for Chelsea and Tony was saying that he was very quiet and quite serious, didn't often, didn't often smile. Tony said, if you got a smirk out of him, it was a good day. But um, the, the key thing was that he was very much the diplomat of the dressing room. If there were young players stepping out of line, he was the one who'd have a chat with them. If there were older players, bit of ego coming into things, he would straighten them out. He was the guy who kept the dressing room harmonious. And I think it says a lot that he then becomes quite a good manager at international level when, as Gregor says, you need to make players, you know, players that Andy Robertson, you know, playing for Liverpool, other players for other nations might be like, well, you know, jog on, I'm not going to, can't be bothered with this for a laugh. I've got the Champions League to worry about. But that they all look so invested in it. And the second point is because I'm a bit of a geek and got so invested in Scotland after watching their triumph in the penalty shootout, I then watched their match yesterday against Slovakia. And though they lost 1-0, what was striking was that he made quite a few changes to the team but they played the same system and they still created a lot of chances. They could have won the game if Ollie McBurney had taken a chance early on. They had chances later on. They all looked like, you know, I know we don't want to get back into Gareth Southgate, but as a contrast, they looked like they knew exactly what the plan was. They knew what the system was. Didn't matter who he brought on. Didn't matter that he changed the lineup. The system worked. They were creating chances. Then they looked pretty solid. They conceded a goal from a long-range shot that perhaps they should have uh, closed down quicker. But generally, they looked pretty solid against another team that in previous years, they would have looked completely hopeless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so used to go to places like Slovakia and like... <laughs> Not having like we're getting, well, Yeah, just getting battered. Or looking like the team who are holding on for dear life. Whereas we're not, we're not a passive team anymore. We go, you know, we actually go and press teams at the right times, and we funnel them into areas we want to, and they think it's, you know, their weaknesses. There's definitely, you know, he's he's obviously an astute coach, and he's worked for some of the biggest clubs in England. Um, so he, that that combined with his kind of calm, solid, and confident demeanour, it's like I think the players look and they, if you feel like you're in good hands, that transforms the atmosphere of the within the group. I think, and they look and they think, you know, we've got. He knows what he's doing, this guy. And and also, there is something that's just chemistry. There, you talk about who's the stars in that team. I mean, come on. Andy Robertson and Tierney, maybe. And they're the two of the most grounded, kind of humble footballers you can ever imagine. And there really is not a star. Everyone's just kind of, and seems to enjoy going to meet up with them. They're all, you know, and we saw that in the celebrations, you know, <laughs> the song that's going to be number one. <laughs> but it, they did it in the most sort of Scotland of ways like it was almost oh. predictable it was going to go like that on the night how were how you feeling when they conceded that equaliser a free header five yards out 87th minute 1-0 up I mean it was just it, uh, I, I saw it coming I'm just going to say I called it a few minutes earlier but yeah you did in the group chat thanks for that <laughs> uh, I, I know, got no response it, from you or Jonathan <laughs> Northcroft and I thought this was this was poorly timed yeah you know, it's a cliche to say you're looking through your fingers. I genuinely was, and I, they were closed a lot of the time as well. So I didn't want to watch when, these, when that corner was going in. I was literally peering through it, and I just, it was just, oh, my God. And I remember actually when the, he made the, the substitutions and he brought on Callum Patterson, you know, this big guy who's like a right-back converted to a striker with his moustache standing on the touchline. I thought, if we, could, you know, if we were to concede a goal here... Making that change 
it could come back to bite us. It honestly fleetingly went through my head. And then that was the first thing I thought, we're in trouble now because we've taken off McGinn, Christie, I think it was, um, and, you know, our most creative players, really, and and Dykes as well from McBurney. And so we really were hanging on for dear life. But, you know, we, penalty kicks, it's our 40 now. We'll take anyone to penalty kicks, 100% record. I know, five out of five as well. Five out two of five. Sh- two mean- shootouts, five out of five in both of them to get them through to Euros. That's the sort of metal that you need. Um, and David Marshall, it had to be Mitrovic missing it, by the way, but David Marshall with a great save down to his left as well. And all the Scotland say, players, and that was one of the things as well, just the trust in one another saying, all of us that took a penalty knew that if we score, Marshall will save one eventually. So just make sure you bury it and he will give us a chance of going through, and he did. That that must now be your favourite penalty save of all time, Gregor. I mean, yeah, I can't, I can't <laughs> think of it. And, and what was your immediate I mean, reaction? Did you hit the roof, run out, yeah, you know, screaming on the street? I've got low ceilings, so I really just about did hit the roof. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's what I was saying. It's quite, it's almost sad that you're, you know, I was literally watching a moan in, in my living room, but yeah, fiance yeah. going out of bed. Uh, I probably woke up the neighbours. So what? Well, but I'm not being was, funny. Beyonce, take that ring back because she should have been right <laughs> beside you. Extra for the time duration. was too much to bear for. I mean, I, my my girlfriend stayed with me for the penalty shootout. She could have she could have written a match report that night. I had to make sure she stayed all the way through. She almost we almost had a row to be honest because she kept trying to wind me up, and I was like, "No, this is important. Leave me alone." But anyway, <laughs> um, we thought we'd discuss our favourite penalty saves um, simply because and our favourite penalty shootout saves simply because of that moment, and it is a. A special moment. Um, Tom, I know people, I hope people have given you an idea of what theirs are. Yeah, there's been some great shouts. Dan says Peter Cech versus Bayern Munich in the Champions League final. Not only did he dive the right way every time, but he saved two penalties. There's lots of other suggestions for someone that I'm not going to mention, as I think Alison might uh, bring it up later. Uh, Lewis says uh, Louis van Gaal bringing Tim Krul on just before the shootout win for Holland in 2014. Yeah. Uh, some Wimbledon fans suggesting Seb Brown in the conference playoff in 2011. I'll have to take your word for it on that one. Uh, ben, maybe with the most left field suggestion so far, Daniel Backman for Watford saves three against Oxford in the Carabao Cup this season. Um, lots of suggestions for Pickford and Seaman for England. Uh, but perhaps my favourite is Chris, who says Mark Bosnich for Villa uh, in the Coca-Cola Cup run when they won it. Uh, he replaced Nigel Spink in the earlier rounds and then in the semi-final against Tranmere, he saved three spot kicks and he did it wearing one of the greatest and coolest goalkeeping shirts of all time. <laughs> Alison? Well, I've got a shock for you, Tom. I am going to mention Jersey Dudek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how could I not? I was there. I was in Istanbul and um, I never fib, so I'm going to say this and you'll say, oh, you're just making that up. But by the time it got to the penalty shootout, I was so calm, completely confident, knew exactly which way it was going to go. You drank that much, did you? No. I was half asleep. You can imagine going through that experience where you're, you're feeling humiliated and wondering if you've got anything left in you to sing a song, let alone believe. And then it unravels as it does in the second half. And then there's the incredible sort of Carragher playing through the cramp and the great saves in extra time. By that point, you actually feel like the gods love you. So I was very calm for the penalty shootout. So although in terms of, um, I think there's been 
there have been better penalty shootouts, but, but they're better quality penalties and better quality saves in the history of football. I have to pick that final save from Shevchenko, even though it was a rubbish penalty. It was quite Awful. weak and it was straight at him, but he did, Josie Dudek did those silly antics beforehand. And uh, to even feel that you have the confidence to do that at that point, ah, incredible. So I kind of, I how could I, you know, I mean, Tom, how could I not pick that? Because I was there and it was the culmination of being put through the emotional ringer. Fair enough. I mean, to be fair to you, that was he was the most popular suggestion of all our listeners who suggested their goalkeeping heroes. But Hugh, you got any got any contenders? Uh, do you know what I was going to say, Seaman? Because Euro '96 was just massive in terms of my childhood, um, and it, it kept us in the tournament. And I was watching the pictures back earlier on, and, and yeah, it was a similar memory. You know, to see Wembley like that and have a penalty shootout and save. And it's funny enough, because it was Rafa Nadal's uncle, Miguel Angel Nadal, it somehow now feels even sweeter. I don't, I don't know why that is. Um, Edwin van der Sar, Champions League final against Nicholas and Elka sticks out for me as well. It wasn't a particular great penalty or save, to be honest, but it just it I meant I thought you lot. were going to pick the goal frame as your favourite goalkeeper, given John Terry's hitting the post effort. That's <laughs> surely the man United's most important save in a penalty shootout. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't on target. It didn't need to be saved. He can take it a million times once again you know always going to miss um and yeah i just yeah i mean the penalty shootout is a wonderful thing um and how we ever thought a golden goal or a silver goal was better than that i've got no idea no idea they're wonderful when you win it but they're pretty I don't, I, i'm well, one of I those don't. i just think uh, you know a sport needs to have a chance to respond if ollie mcburney had skewed his penalty wide and then mitrovic had scored on thursday we wouldn't have heard from Gregor for about a month. And, it, and if we had, he would have been even angrier at me than he has been today. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that that one went the way it did, personally. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. Alison Rudd, thank you as well. Uh, that was another game podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. We'll see if the England conversations moved on. We all might be talking about how brilliant they are. There might be some tactical genius from Gareth Southgate Sprinkle in there. We might be playing three, one, two, four, or something like that. We'll see what happens. But thank you for being with us on the game podcast. Uh, remember, go to the times.co.uk forward slash the game right now. You can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday times for more of the latest news from the footballing world and you can get yourself one month free of course Uh, we'll see you on thursday thanks for listening 